it's communication. That's like the external part of it, right? But to be a great communicator that inspires, that motivates, that engages and connects, it's about having humility. So not knowing you have the answer to everything. I've seen some just remarkable examples of that. It's about having empathy, putting yourself in other people's shoes, which is especially important in the last couple of years, right? We're, we're all, as I heard from someone, we're all in the same storm, but just in different boats. So having empathy for what someone else's experience is, that can really help people connect. Welcome to the Waste No Day podcast, a podcast specifically for and about the home services industry as it relates to plumbing, heating, air conditioning, and electrical. More than a podcast, Waste No Day is a credo, a determination, a mindset. It is a never-ending discipline. It is a refuse-to-lose pursuit. It is a wake-up call every morning to waste no day. Now here's your hosts, Brian Burton and Nate Minnick. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Waste No Day podcast. I hope you've been enjoying the start to your week. Your hosts, Nate and Brian, are hanging out here with you, and we are looking forward to a leadership journey today. We're going to be focusing this podcast on a book uh, called The Savage Leader, written by Darren Ranke, and we are looking forward to talking with him about his 13 principles to becoming a better leader, starting from the inside out. Uh, but before we do, uh, we're going to start off with our introduction on the topic today, and we're going to look to Brian for our quote. The traditional leader is driven by ego, while the savage leader is driven by purpose. The traditional leader uses a command and control style with their team, but the savage leader empowers and enables their team. Darren Ranke. There you go again, using a quote from the actual person we're going to be interviewing. I like it. It was great. It was like I was uh, powering through the audio book and for the first of two times, didn't finish it the second time, but actually twice because I I thought it was a really good book. And I really enjoyed the bullet point nature of the book. So each chapter was one of the 13 principles, which I was like, oh, cool. This is easy for a scatterbrain person like myself to stay on track here. You know, like I could pause it if I was getting to the shop in the morning, getting ready to go train. Usually I just pause it and leave it where it is with this book. I would back it up to the beginning of whichever principle I was on, which made it easier for me to stay on track. And as I listen, I, I take notes wherever I can. If I'm in the car, I'll just hold the side button on the phone and say, make a note. And the, the uh, phone will kick it back to me and, and uh, let me speak to it to make a note uh, on my recliner as I'm, as I'm taking some notes and reading while we're watching a movie or something with a an earbud in my left ear, which I'm known for, I would stop, take a note when something stuck out a little bit. But the quote, that quote, among one of three or four things that particularly stuck out in a big way because I've had so many leaders who, I don't think these types of leaders are necessarily mean you know, men or women, like just overpowering people. I think when you're an underdeveloped leader, like you have not been trained in leadership and you don't have the necessary skills because you haven't been taught them. A lot of Pastor Mark Driscoll said once in a sermon I heard, he said, 
men are prone toward two things, chauvinism or cowardice. They either tend toward too much or too little. And I think in, in this way, it's no different. If you're hoist into a leadership position with no training on how to be a, a leader, you just naturally go toward backing away and not doing enough and letting everybody run wild, or you go command and control style, as Darren Ranke pointed out, or as, as our uh, future guest who will be on in a few weeks, Derek Gaunt, author of Ego Authority Failure from the Black Swan Group. It's that, it's that ego slash authority model. And what's funny is I would know some of these people, guys in particular, who were in these leadership positions doing too much, like an, an authoritarian, outside of work, and they weren't like that at all. They're just good people to be around. But you put them in this, in this place and in charge of these people and, and these budgets and this team and these results or whatever, and they don't have the training to be a leader. Well, they, they gravitate toward one of these two states, too much or too little, and they become an authoritarian because they don't really have the training. So what am I going to do? Well, what do I think I should be doing? Oh, I think I should be telling everybody what to do all the time, and if they don't do it, I'm angry, and I take it. You know, you know it's this ego-driven authoritarian leadership style. We'll call it a leadership style. It's not a leadership style. It's a lack of proper training in leadership, and those people need training in empathy, and uh, I don't want to step all over it, but the 13 principles we're going to talk about here today. But in general, it's a leadership training and a, and a lack thereof that causes poor leadership. I think everyone has it in them intrinsically. You're, you're two little guys. You're guys who err on the side of, I'm just going to let everybody do their thing and hope that I don't have to deal with any confrontation. Well, they just need I guess you would say leadership training, but they need leadership training in um, confrontation and accountability. Accountability. I wouldn't say a confrontation because, man. Well, a willingness to go. To for, go. for as many times as I, I've, I've had to do, quote, unquote, confrontation, even the few times I've actually gone at it in that way, I've, I've thought later and, and, and realized I didn't really have to be that harsh. I could have been much less confrontational and gotten probably better results. No, but there has to be a willingness to go start the conversation. How you have and conduct the conversation is, that's that's what you're talking about. But there yeah, has to be a willingness I, to go put To go have it is probably assertiveness. Yes. I don't know better that word, it's better yeah, word. Conf confrontational. I think it's just, you know, a willingness to assert yourself. And not in a dominant way, just assert yourself. To right. just be able to walk up and ask the question. You know, I was a kid. I, I'd order a meal with, with please no onions. If there's onions in it, I can't, I can't eat it. I cannot force it down if there are onions in it. And I'd get the meal and I, and I could feel myself either getting ready to rage and toss the plate and say, I'm not paying for this crap and walk out <laughs> or shudder to think of even bringing it up to the waitress. No middle right? ground. Zero middle ground. Zero. So anytime I had an issue, it was 50-50. It was either going to be rage and, and, you know, in life. And, and this, you know, affected my career in a negative way more times than I can count. Um, the rage one in particular. But you can also be walked all over. And I, I don't know that most people have quite a bit of both of them. 
I guess probably most people have an even amount of, of either one where, you know, the ones who really stand out are the ones who go all the way toward backing down and, and just being trampled all over or the ones who go all the way to the other side, which is dominant, um, you know, leading by sheer force of will and dominating everybody and keeping their thumb on everyone. You, those two stick out. I think most people probably land in the center, but they go, they naturally veer off toward one side or the other. Everyone needs leadership training. Everyone needs accountability training, communication training. Everyone needs to be able to have a hard conversation. That doesn't have to mean being hard on someone with your conversation. But as you said, assertive enough to go start the conversation. It's not an easy thing to do. I think what stops most people from being in leadership positions is they don't want to have these conversations. And we see it often. You promote somebody to a team leader. And the first time they have to, to do a write-up or, or a disciplinary conversation, they're like, or, God forbid, fire someone, which they'll, usually, they'll have a manager in the room for, but you still want them to be a part of it. First thing they usually say is like, hey, bro, what, what do I say? What do I do? <laughs> You're like, write them up. Okay, I'm going to do that. <laughs> How do I start that conversation? <laughs> You're like, uh, well, you start off by reminding this person of the last time you had this conversation with them. If it's the fourth time someone's had this conversation and that team leader wasn't a part of the first three, it shouldn't be part of writing them up, right? Unless you just want them to see the process, but they shouldn't be leading it. But that's what it is. It's, so it's the first time you have a hard conversation. You say, hey, bud, can't be showing up late to the meeting with your uniform shirt on backwards and smelling like cigarettes or alcohol or whatever, you know. Uh, yeah, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I guess you would have dri driven your company truck to said meeting. Yeah. So, <laughs> right, that's one of those zero tolerance things for customers listening. <laughs> My man over here uh, preaching, man. It's good. It's good. You talked about courage and cowardice, right? Um, the two... The two ends of the lion. Adrian Rogers tells a story about a man who bragged that he had cut off the tail of a man-eating lion uh, with his pocket knife. And asked why he hadn't cut off the lion's head. The man replied, well, somebody else had already done that. Right? So <laughs> which, which end of the lion are you on? The, the courage part or the cowardice? And that's something that everybody has to answer. Whether you, Again, I mean, we talk so many times about what leadership is. You know, it's not a title. Um, it, it, it's, it's not a position. It's, it's who you are or who you are proclaiming to be. And we each have a choice to make that courage or cowardice. And as much as I'd like to say, once you've chosen one, you know, once you've chosen to be courageous, you're, you're good on that for the rest of the, the rest of the journey. That's not the case. I mean, there's plenty of leaders, myself included, who can be courageous in one moment and then falter to cowardice the next. But the good part about that is the other direction. Just because perhaps you've chosen cowardice in the past doesn't mean that you are permanently set there either. And if you felt weak or a little inept or you felt a little insecure about some decisions or things that you've done or said or had to say to somebody else in the past, that doesn't have to be your story for the rest of your life either. That's the beauty of leadership. It is supposed to be a growing journey, one full of learning and improvement along the way. You talk to the greatest leaders out there and they will 100% tell you about their failures and how their failures either drove them to become better or helped them learn so that they wouldn't make those mistakes again. 
Either way, failure is part of the journey. It's written into the rule book. And choosing whether you're going to be courageous in a moment or a coward uh, is a big piece of that self-development. And that's tough. I mean, nobody's saying that it isn't. And yet the, the picture of the lion sitting on front of the book, the savage leader, is both impactful and a, rem- a reminder, excuse me, of what it takes to make those decisions. You have to be willing to be courageous, to be bold, to be brave, to be savage. That and more is what we're going to be talking about with our guest today as we bring Darren Ranke and put him in your passenger seat. Our guest today is Darren Renke. He fundamentally believes there is greatness within each one of us. His mission is to unleash the inner line within leaders so that they can lead more authentic and joyful lives while creating stronger and more resilient teams, organizations, and communities. Darren founded Group 60, an executive coaching and training company based in San Diego, to bring his purpose to life and to transform leaders, their teams, and their organizations. Group 60 works with leaders and teams at Fortune 500s, mid-market companies, fast-growing startups, and visionary nonprofits. Darren started his career at Accenture and also spent time at successful companies such as Gap, Neutrogena, and ProFlowers prior to launching Group 60. Darren graduated with highest honors from UC Davis and received his MBA from UC Berkeley. He is also a certified executive coach through the International Coach Federation. With that, welcome to the show, Darren. Great to be here. Good to talk to you, Darren. I'm I'm uh, a fan. How did I become a fan? You might ask. Go ahead and ask. I actually am curious. All right, thank you for asking. <laughs> I became a fan because, man, what what leadership book was I on? The Silent Language of Leaders. I was the little uh, engine that could quote unquote reading. No, that would be if I was reading with my eyes, but I read with my ears, <laughs> so I can take in much bigger words, uh, many more syllables. I was uh, audiobook reading The Silent Language of Leaders by Carol Kinsey Goman, Dr. Carol Kinsey Goman, who we had on the show a few weeks ago. And we've, we've um, determined that we want to do, I'm hoping, uh, one leadership episode a month. And if possible, with somebody who authored a book on the subject or someone who we would consider an expert in the subject. And your book title popped up under the suggested books. And as some of our audience knows from me talking about it, the way I come up with who, who's going to be guests outside of our industry is I just power through as many books as I can. And the ones that really jump out um, are, are the ones that I try to get the authors on. And your book cover, The Lion, really jumped out first off. So I just saw that and I'm like, ooh. And then the word savage, you know, savage leader. I'm like, yeah, yeah. If I'm a leader, I'm a savage one, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuck out. <laughs> And then I, so I, I listened to a little, I looked at the 13 principles and I was like, yeah, I like this, man. This looks, looks like good stuff. And then I listened to. I, Kudos I, to your marketing team, by the way. Absolutely. You, you roped yeah. Brian in. Which I'm guessing is you, right? <laughs> at least when the book was written. Um, Me plus a few others. Absolutely. I cannot take any of the design credit or actually the idea for the line on the cover, but oh, okay, I can talk cool. about that later. Nice. All right. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. So I, I listened to the book. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I sent, you know, candidly, I sent a message to Nate and some of our leadership team here that, Hey, I'm going to check this book out. 
one of them jumped in and said, I'll download it too. I'm like, hold off, man. Let me make sure it's any good first. Cause I don't know, Darren, you know, I never heard of him. So I got through, I don't know, three, four chapters. And I'm like, sent the text into the group, get the, burn the credit, get the book. I, I really want our entire leadership team to read this book and beyond these 13 principles. So, I mean, I'd love to, um, not to spoil too much of the book, but let's talk about where the book came from, how, how you became um, an expert on leadership, so to speak. I mean, you, you, you trained some pretty high-level people, as you talk about in the book, and I'd love to uh, hear about your journey, how you got to that point. Yeah, it was definitely a journey. So a couple of big questions there, but in terms of the genesis of the book, so it goes back about five years, I guess even before that. You know, I always thought, I would write a book and usually it was during my ink filled twenties and thirties. And if I had a burned relationship with her friend or through work or whatnot and anger and angst is not enough fuel to write a book, at least not for me. I'm just not that angry of a person. I tend to forgive and forget or at least forgive, maybe not forget. But, um, it was about five years ago now that a friend of mine, Dana, who I also interviewed in, in the book, she said, it sounds like you're going to write a book. This was after a long nature hike we used to do together and just talk about work and life, et cetera. And, at the time, I took it as a, a question, but I think it was actually more of a challenge to me in terms of just saying, hey, you know, it's, you know write this book. And it, it made sense for a lot of reasons, or I guess three specific reasons. One, which is I everything I'd been doing to, to date was speaking, consulting, coaching, writing, training. And it was a great way to actually package not all of my thinking, but a lot some of my thinking in easy-to-consume package crystal in the form of a book. And then, um, you know, secondly, it gave me a, a platform to actually reach out to folks and, you know, here's some information about me. It's not just a, you know, copycat person, but it's something new and different. And then the third, and arguably probably the biggest reason for writing a book, or at least the fuel for writing a book and getting through to not just completing it, but actually publishing it, was I had a self-limiting belief in my head about my ability to write. And it really spawned from, I guess, I always thought college actually probably goes back to even high school English. I didn't get into AP English. And that was, the test was about how you analyze literature. And so likewise in college, I was pre-med at the time. So I had to take all these courses, including a year of English. And I really struggled with literature. And so I internalized it. I'm a bad writer. You know, in reality, it was, you know, Darren's not good at analyzing what Kafka meant in the metamorphosis and, and so forth. But, but I internalized that negatively, of course. And so it, this allowed me to actually challenge that limiting belief in my head. I'm a big believer in growth and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And that, so that was a big reason for, or a third reason for writing the book. Yeah. I love the comfort zone, comfort zone, um, busting. And I'd love to talk about your, your violent fear of sharks as a kid and how, how that took shape later in your life as we get through them. Um, but yeah, so how did you get, I don't, maybe let's go back a little further. How did you even come up with the concept of what you were going to write a book about? When you were saying you, you were young and, and knew you wanted to write a book, did you know that was going to be a leadership book? Not at all. Because my pathway into leadership, so for me, I was a kid, probably one of the few really interesting fun facts about my life is my parents are both veterinarians. And so um, I always knew the world for careers, at least through the lens of health science. So what veterinarians did, what, what uh, doctors, physicians did, dentists, etc. And so that was my lens into the world. And my sister ended up becoming a human dermatologist, which always gets some funny glances because my mom was a veterinary dermatologist. And so likewise, I wanted to be a human orthopedic surgeon. My dad's a veterinary orthopedic surgeon. So 
um, playing forward what my parents had done. And so halfway through college, I realized I didn't want to go to med school anymore and just didn't really know what to do. So I ended up taking a job at Accenture, what was Anderson Consulting in San Francisco, as a great way to see and experience the world, learn a lot about business. My, uh, you know, my best friend growing up, his dad was the CFO of Wells Fargo. And so he encouraged me to go into consulting or investment banking as a way to quote unquote figure things out. So I did the consulting tour, did about four years, and then did my MBA at UC Berkeley. And then did bounced around a bunch and just, I just observed subconsciously at first over the years how many projects and organizations would go off the rails because of underdeveloped leaders or leadership teams. And so I, I had that in the back of my head. And then it wasn't until a mentor of mine who used to run the, the global consulting division for the Gallup organization was going through a coach training program. And I always knew coaching through the lens of sports. That's, you know, playing uh, a high school basketball player and baseball player. But I didn't understand coaching through the business context or executive coaching context. So went through a six-day accelerated coaching course and found it to be really interesting and very complementary to the consulting work I was doing at the time. But it wasn't until you just played that forward a few years and I really pivoted away from consulting and in, in into a pure play executive coaching and training company. But um, so the book was really a natural extension of that because it was the work I've been doing for the last 10 plus years formally, but then also informally in terms of all the experiences that I had to in seeing great leaders and mentors and frankly, really uh, not so great leaders and mentors. So leadership made sense from that context. Before it was, I thought maybe I'd write a book if I had something interesting enough towards the end of my life and career that people beyond my kids and grandkids would want to read or maybe they wouldn't even want to read it. But um, so that was the initial spark and thought. I thought it'd be kind of a cool, fun, creative project, but it really made so much sense because of the work I've been doing and some of the business goals I had for myself and, of course, challenging that limiting belief. So, yeah, anyway, sorry, kind of a long answer, but um, that's how I began a leadership book. Maybe it, it touches on me personally because I've been going through a bit of a transformation personally, <clears throat> excuse me, on um, kind of busting through some self-limiting beliefs and um, a bit of a bit of um, a touch of imposter syndrome, I, I'm assuming. Uh, Nate and I have actually mm -hmm. been talking about doing an episode with an expert on what imposter syndrome is and how to, how to, uh, think your way around it. Um, but the book was very, very good for me because you're not, you didn't really shy away from, from your own, uh, I guess, self-limiting beliefs, weaknesses and, and kind of how you came through them. And, you know, it's a, it's a leadership book, but it's a much, it's a very personal journey of yours. Like I told you when, when you first called, as soon as you said, Hey, this is Darren Ranky, I'm like, Yeah, I know. As soon as you said, Hey, I recognized your voice from your book. <laughs> and it's, but it's more than like, you know, hearing, you know, they have these old audio books, you know, written in like C.S. Lewis books written a hundred years ago that you can hear someone else read on YouTube. And you don't feel like you know that guy, right? You would recognize his voice on the phone. But when you called, I felt like a lot of our, our audience when they Facebook messaged me, and say, bro, I feel like I've known you for years, despite the fact that I've never, I didn't know your name until you, you messaged me. But as soon as you said hello, I was like, oh, I recognize that voice because I'm halfway through the audiobook for the second time. And it's a very personal book. It is about leadership, but it's also about breaking through comfort zones and, you know, you get into intimate details of your life and childhood and, um, it's very personal. So it's like a, 
it's like a window into who you really are. It's hard to believe that we don't know each other in a weird way, which uh, I'd never really wrestled with that idea until until we were talking here just a few minutes ago. So it was it was more than just a leadership book. It's like a personal journey, and I, I really respect that. It's hard to – I've considered writing a book, and I've been asked to by, like, a lot of people who I work with here and people I know outside of here just for various things that I've gone through and um, come out so far so good on the other side. But I always feel like, you know, some self-limiting beliefs. One, who wants to hear what I have to say? Now we know that dozens of people listen to the podcast, right, Nate? Absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and do want to hear what we have to say, although it's probably more of the guests than, than me and Nate. But outside of that, it, it's like, who wants to hear what you have to say? Uh, I didn't go to college. I don't know how to write. I, I, I struggle with, you know, whether to use who or whom. Uh, is this a, should there be a comma here, or a semicolon? Like, come on, you're not smart enough to write. And, and you use that everywhere. So we, we deal with mostly selling technicians, tech, you know, plumbers, HVAC techs, and electricians who go into the home and they don't get to work until they have sold something. They're not necessarily salesmen, but if they go into a home and give a price for a water heater and the customer doesn't like the plumber, that plumber doesn't have work today. You don't get paid unless you have work. You might be going home for the day. So we deal with salespeople and we, we deal with some individuals who will go to the nicer areas around here and they'll, you know, some prejudge where they go into a not so nice area and they think, ah, they don't have the money for this. So they just blow through the presentation and roll out. But the flip side is that self-limiting belief where it's like a mansion and you don't feel up to the task of um, impressing this person enough to buy and to buy something. And this isn't something a lot of technicians talk about openly, but it's a conversation I've had with many where they just, they didn't know that's what they were feeling, but that's what they were feeling. So these self-limiting beliefs can be crippling and, and really ruin a career or a life. And your quote unquote leadership book was, was so um, packed with you like sideline examples of that self-limiting thing and how people worked through it and became a champion on the other end. It's probably my favorite part of the book. Maybe it's just because of what I'm walking through now, but it really stuck with me and I was really excited for our audience to hear it. Well, where do I start? Yeah, by the way, I, I deeply appreciate um, your comments and um, there's so many things I can say to that. Um, one, it's interesting. Originally, when I came up with the concept of the book, I was thinking about telling everybody, every other person's story. And I don't know if it was, you know, cathartic or therapeutic for myself to actually tell my own story or whether it was, I thought, gosh, and I wonder if people can actually benefit from that. So I appreciate you sharing it. The personal part of it was helpful for you. And because obviously it, was, it required a lot of vulnerability for me to do that just in terms of sharing some of my stories that I you know, hadn't really told that broadly before. But um so yeah, so the intention was never to tell that many of my own stories, but I just kept threading them in, kept threading them in just because like, oh, this is, this is complimentary to what other people are talking about. And I could give a very personal lens to it because obviously you can tell something when you're actually going through that experience or gone through that experience yourself. So I, the book really details through um, 13 specific uh, elements, and I'm not sure if we'll have time to cover all 13 of them today, but for the sake of our readers, could you go over 
all 13 of those um, principles? Sure. Um, so first of all, the reason what the book is structured the way it is, is I tend to personally get bogged down, maybe bored is the right word, when I read other leadership books or self-help type books, because it feels like it's the same thing over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. And I really like the idea, if you remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books, I know as a kid, yes. a little bit different, but the idea being, <laughs> hey, you want to go you want to go to the door, swing on a vine or whatever, and you skip to page number 55. The idea was kind of the same in terms of, hey, you know, these are 13 principles. They're not all going to be relevant to people right now. And so skip around. Don't just, don't read a chapter if it doesn't resonate with you now. Skip the one that does. And the table of contents was intentionally designed to do that. So people can get a sense for, oh, well, values, that's interesting. Self-learning beliefs, okay, that resonates. Gosh, patient. I'm really struggling with being patient with my family, with the people in my career, with my colleagues, et cetera, to jump to those things. So that was the reason it's structured the way it is. I mean, initially I started writing it and it was just this long word document, but then a friend of mine today, we actually put these into bite-sized chunks and principles. I'm like, yeah, that, exactly, that's it. Because that's the way I was seeing the world and the way I personally enjoy consuming information. So anyway, I don't mean to, to dodge your question, but no, that's it's a, it's a great idea. Of the book. Yeah, great idea, great yeah. subject. So what uh, what what are those chapters and subjects combined? So I'll give you the the overview because I've thought a lot about how actually someone would actually how we would actually train organizations and teams to this because you wouldn't necessarily do it those thirteen in a row. So I would say foundationally, the first principle that actually I think is relevant to everyone is this idea of identifying and anchoring and living out your values because that's what gives us consistency that's what gives us a north star or light to actually look towards in terms of guiding ourselves and our careers and in our lives and as we come across obstacles tough decisions values are really what anchor you and so that's that's the first one the second one tying to that is around authenticity so how do you actually live out live out those values in an authentic way you know a lot of people tend to copy and paste things oh elon musk you know bounces his get on his knee while he does invoices and texts, like whether that's good or not, I don't know, I won't judge, but most people aren't <laughs> like that. We'll find out you in know, about 15 people, years, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, most people aren't starting three unicorn companies at one time, but um, we're not all like that. And I think it's important that we we look at who we are as an individual and as a leader and we actually you know, tailor our authenticity, our style to that. So that's, that's another one of the principles. And then... Um, there's a big section on communications because I call it connecting and engaging with your tribe, but it's about ultimately it's communication. That's like the external part of it. Right. But to be a great communicator that inspires, that motivates, that engages and connects, it's about having humility. So not knowing you have the answer to everything. I've seen some just remarkable examples of that. It's about having empathy, um, which I don't think I included in the book, but that's, that's a new mindset that we're working on a lot with clients these days. But putting yourself in other people's shoes, which is especially important in the last couple of years, right? We're, we're all, as I heard from someone, we're all in the same storm, but just in different boats. So having empathy for what someone else's experience is, that can really help people connect. Becoming more curious, just curious about people, their backgrounds, their experiences, their skills. It's just a great way to engage with people. That's a big thing is around these mindsets and skills about becoming a great communicator. And then... There's a bunch of principles that I consider almost accelerators to becoming a great leader. So it's about patience. So how do you become more patient? So having an impatient 
impatience for action, but having patience for results, especially things out of your control. Another accelerator is around perseverance. So how do you actually get through some of those dark times? We've got some great insights from a professional um, triathlete and also a Navy SEAL around perseverance, but also focus. So how do you stay focused? So those are, those are what I consider three accelerators. And then what I consider the triad, it's almost a continuum. And, you know, my editor pushed me to actually say, are these really different chapters or is it one thing? I actually think they're distinct, which is the idea of self-limiting beliefs, doubts, and fears as being three principles. So the idea of self-limiting beliefs are the example I gave about my ability or inability to write. It's these things, these old tapes, as a you know, client of mine said in the past, about um, things you have in your head. But if you don't check those beliefs, you accept them as truths, but those can become doubts. And then you're doubting yourself, whether you're going into a sales conversation, like you mentioned, the person going into a, you know, a mansion on a, on a client or customer call, or, um, you know, any doubts you have about your life, whether you're delivering in front of a team or pitching to an investor or selling to people or, or talking to your boss, frankly, right? And then that can actually become fear. And fear is really paralyzing in terms of just not allowing you to do what you do and to really bring some of your strengths and your and an authentic version of yourself to life. So that's the way I would really encapsulate it is almost like you have these foundational principles of values and authenticity, you know, this core pillar about how you connect and engage with people. And the accelerators is really that third piece around um, focus, patience, perseverance. And then the last piece, which is around uh, self-limiting beliefs, doubts, and fears. So that's, that's a quick high-level sketch of the book. I love it. Whew. Hold on. We're going to need uh, three more hours to unpack everything <laughs> yeah. you said. That was 13 <laughs> principles. The one quote that you uh, threw out there that I had not heard before I, I read the book, but that I thought our audience would get a lot out of, you said, impatient for results. Or I'm sorry. Why don't you tell us what you said? <laughs> Patience for results, impatience for action. Love that. Who is that your quote? Yeah, it was, I just, I thought a lot about patient. And another thing I didn't mention about the book is that these are all 13 principles that I've tried that I regularly am working on. Maybe not all of them at once, but just different ones that resonate at different points in my life. Whereas now I feel really anchored to a set of values. But um, anyway, so I, I go through the different stages of my life. But with patience, it's just something that would show up in my personal life, in my professional life, just being just, just impatient, which would lead to frustration. Now it's just the one thing that would just, I would characterize my emotions over the last however many years was just frustration, which really was rooted in impatience. And so I, so I thought a lot about that. And that's where a lot of these principles came to life personally was I would try these things, I would test them, I would think, think about them, I would, I would work with other people around it. And what I realized is patience for results yeah, it's probably not what a lot of executives want to hear, what leaders want to hear, but there's so many things that are outside of your control, whether it's, you know, you're trying to close a deal and the budget's just not there, you know, and your guys' world, you know, a business doesn't have or, or, or a consumer doesn't have the budget for a new HVAC system or, or the other kinds of work that you guys do. You can't necessarily control that and force that. You have to, in some cases, have, have some of that patience for results, but pair that with an impatience for action. So what can you do? from an action perspective. So playing that one forward is what can you do to provide value to that, that prospect so that when they do have the budget in mind, and maybe this is a really crude example, not understanding your business exactly, but what kind of value can you deliver to that person? You know, case studies, other examples of how they maybe saved money or, you know, their employees um, were healthier and happier or, or their families were or whatnot. So thinking about what action can you take 
in service of whatever outcome you're trying to achieve, but recognizing that you, in some cases, need to have that patience for results. Yeah, patience is uh, as a virtue, as the, you know the old saying goes, and uh, we are always looking for results. I mean, the, our listeners tend to be goal oriented and self improved, uh, autonomous people, uh, or at least trying to get there, right? And and that's a yeah. big part of leadership. And so, I mean, <clears throat> you're you're the founder of uh, Group Sixty, which is a coaching and training company. And I'm curious, you know, as you've done your consulting and as you've gotten around, uh, assumably around the country or or uh, internationally, I'm not sure how large your network goes, but when it comes down to it, people are still people, right? It doesn't matter if they're executives in a boardroom or, uh, you know, a golfer out in the middle of a course or a plumber in a truck, people are still people. And, and there's a fundamental um, likeness to many of the same problems and challenges they deal with. So I'm curious, as, as you've detailed out these 13 principles and you've looked through all of them, what would be the one that you say has been kind of revolutionary to most people that you encounter as a place to start? Ooh, that's a big question. Revolutionary is probably a, a strong word. You know, I'm not, I'm not arrogant enough to think that, um, you know, this is my story, the way I see the world, the way the people I've worked with is these searching principles. But I would say one that's universal, maybe not revolutionary, is the idea of values. You know, I, I, it starts there, right? You know, what are the things that I value? Because that's what, that's the underpinning of our success, of our own personal greatness. And I can talk about greatness as a, as a separate sidebar, but um, that's the universal principle that everyone, that resonates with everyone. And even it pertains to anyone. If you want to be a, a great, impactful leader, it's like you have to stand for something. You have to live out those values authentically. It's also, I do a lot of volunteer work with the uh, Navy SEAL community and other special operators to help them transition from successful military careers into the civilian world. And it's funny, and it's not funny, but many times the first parameters is compensation. And as we dig, you know, I, you know, I always, you know, I kind of, you know, smile because I get it, right? You know, you, you hear about these successful people in the civilian world and you want to, you want to get that opportunity too. But um, it never is money. It never is money anyway, right? When you look at any kind of studies of engagement of happiness in the workplace and whatnot, it's, we always go, it's about the values and what gives them meaning and purpose in work. Is So it's about values. So anyway, I, uh, I digress a little bit, but that's the one that's definitely been universal for everyone. I would think also, I think communication, that engaging with your tribe, that's another one that's universal as well, as well as authenticity. So the first three actually, coincidentally in the book, are the most universal ones. And the other ones really just depend on where you are in your life and your career. I encourage people to not look at it like, hey, read this book once, but actually come back to it, come back to the principles that may resonate at different points in your life. You know, maybe you just got promoted to a certain position. Now you're managing people for the first time and you're just flailing because, man, I'm great at doing my job. I'm great at doing the service calls. But now I got to inspire and motivate and engage a team. That's a fundamentally different skill set. So you may have some of those self-limiting beliefs or the example you gave of wanting to write a book or probably I imagine starting a podcast. I know it was for me in terms of, gosh, if people actually want to listen to me talk, you know, like, do I have anything interesting to say? And so you have those things. So those things might pop up depending on changes in your life. So a lot of our listeners are um, in the home services industry, meaning that they're frontline people or they're literally plumbers, electricians, and HVAC technicians that are going in and out of homes on a daily basis. When, when you're translating that first principle about um, 
using values to anchor and guide you. Could you push that out a little bit and like kind of put that into shoe leather uh, for somebody who's in a truck right now, who is, you know, listening to this podcast, they're about ready to pull up to somebody's home, walk in there and talk to them about how their sewer line is, is failing. Yeah, I would almost take a step back from that. And it's, and it's about what do you stand for? What are your values? You know, is it about growth? Is it about, uh, you know, faith? Is it about family? Is it about um, whatever it may be, you know, success, achievement, those things that that's where it starts. But and in trying to orient your life around those things. So, you know, if it's around growing, it could be constantly growing and getting better. So learning a new process to actually um, to service that client more effectively, maybe even learning about their business or their lives and so you can share things that matter to them. So how a new HVAC system benefits them from a health perspective or from a cost reduction perspective. So you, it may be if your value is, um, you know, it's help or support that we're caring even just that you could actually provide value above and beyond the service call you're doing. So I guess that's, that's a one example of how you could actually live out that value within the context of, of that role. You know, but if, it, if it's like giving back, it's okay, well, how do I actually give back? Maybe you give back in some way to some of your clients in terms of volunteering and whatever philanthropy matters to them or carving out some of your own time and treasure to actually give back to the community around a cause that you really care deeply about. Does that, does that push you in the weather? By the way, I love that expression. So is that detailed enough? Yeah. And, and I think you're, you're right. It starts before you even get to the home, right? Because that's a very personal commitment as to who you're going to be. Yeah, and just in being authentic, you know, I think people just think they need to be a certain way, you know, not, not, um, you know, if I think about different service technicians that have helped us with our home in businesses, you know, they have different personalities, different, some are very technical and want to get to the root of the problem. Some are very personable and, you know, hear, want to hear their, hear your story about how whatever it is they're doing really impacts you and how frustrating it is or whatnot. So, uh, yeah, I think it's being that authentic person that you want to be or that you're meant to be, I think that's really important too. I wanted to personally touch on principle number three, which is maybe it has a lot to do with where Nate and I are. I'm sure it does, but there, you know, this is a leadership episode for us and we're not speaking necessarily just to like managers and team leaders and the owners of businesses. And this one, all these episodes are for the technician. Um, but I, but I liked the idea of forging the unbreakable bond with your tribe, which is principle number three. Um, mm-hmm. can, you, can you push that one out a little bit in terms of maybe fathers, mothers, that tribe being at home, um, managers, team leaders, that tribe being a few people at work to, you know, maybe you're running an entire business of 30, 40 people. How do you, how do you, you know, starting small and then working your way up to how do you forge unbreakable bonds with a team of dozens of people? Yeah, great question. And it's interesting. I actually started a blog, you know, I I thought about a future book called The Savage Parent and like just challenging these 13 from a parenting perspective. I've got two boys, so I I think about that a lot. Do it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I started testing it and the first seven or eight really helped. And then I, I kind of like ran aground a little bit, but I actually did figure out a way to get all 13 to master being a parent. So anyway, I digress, but I, but I have thought about that. And 
from the connecting with your tribe, if you think about it as a parent or as just a member of your family, it's especially as a parent, right? So it's like being the, oh, the expert, the authority, and this will probably fly in the face of a lot of people's parenting methods, but, and my, my own included, but having some sense of humility for asking your kids, you know, not just telling them this is the way it's done, but asking from their experience, you know, what have you learned? What do you see? You know, not just, not just assuming you have the answer. So humility is just a great, skill to have not you know I, I see in a context that i'm around which is ceos walking around walking the floor so to speak and they're talking to the frontline folks because they're the ones that actually are engaging with customers they're the ones that see problems with the product problem with the service way before they're going to see that so the idea of just humility not having a conversation even with a customer on a call or your team members who the person may not have as much experience but being humble and ask them, you know, what are you experiencing? What have you seen? What, you know, what do you think? I mean, that's just a, just a great skill to connect with people. It's just, just, just compare that to someone who just is, is arrogant and thinks they have the answer to every question, whether it's in your personal life or professional life. Those people are not engaging. That's the whole idea of connecting and engaging with your tribe, forging unbreakable bonds. So that's a, a way of humility could be applied with your team, uh, with your clients and customers, and with your family life as well. So it's not always easy. Always easy, by the way. That is one of those traits that, man, is it on display when we're looking at somebody else, right? One of these know-it-all cats that uh, has oh. has every answer and one-ups you on everything. How in the world are we so blind when that one is sticking out on us? You know. Oh man, yeah, it is obvious. It's harder to see it uh, in ourselves, and that's that's a big part of the savage leader is being introspective. You know, being willing to be introspective, assess yourself, assess those values, assess your level of humility and or curiosity, which is another part of that forging unbreakable bond. Let's say, for the sake of argument, I'm not willing to be introspective. I only want to use this on <laughs> other people. No, I'm kidding. That's totally Nate's thing, not mine. <laughs> uh, well, Darren, okay, so humility is absolutely a part of leadership. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that, although it is hard to actually apply it. Um, and and some of that humility is certainly driven by the need to say that you not, you're not sure where you're going. And so some of the principles you have detailed out here, uh, kind of touch on some of those points, right? So you have digging deep and persevering in dark times. You have also seeking out discomfort to drive growth, which is kind of like the other direction on things and then challenging Mm -hmm. limiting beliefs. So dive into some of those and, and talk to, you know, the listener listening right now, who's kind of feeling like maybe they're not feeling challenged at all, or maybe they're feeling so challenged that they're, they're breaking under the weight of it. Well, let's start with not being challenged at all. So I created this, this series of questions. I call it the growth and discomfort index. It just gives you a score of basically, you know, are you not pushing yourself hard enough or are you pushing yourself too hard? Are you, are you right in the zone, so to speak? And it's just basically the idea of, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, learning new things, trying new techniques, try to, if you're, if you're a big reader of leadership books and TED Talks and things like that, trying some of those things, trying to engage in a different conversation with your child or with your spouse or, or friend or your client. So the idea of pushing yourself, whether it's through learning, whether it's through growth, saying yes, you know, maybe you've got a tough, there's a tough client assignment coming up and you got a whole team sitting in the room and you raise your hand and say, yeah, I'm going to go for it. I'll take servicing that new challenging client. Maybe the person's prickly from a personality perspective, or maybe just the, if the situation is really challenged from a technical perspective. So the idea being push yourself out of your comfort zone, raise your hand, 
say yes when every ounce of your body is saying no. But, you know, of course, you only want to do it if growth is in, in mind. I, I'm not saying just throw yourself into something that has no learning, although I would argue that you could probably learn for any challenging situation. But the idea of being just raise your hand, say yes, when you experience that discomfort, it's, uh, that's probably a pretty good sign you need to push yourself a little harder. And that's where the growth happens, frankly. Is if I think about all the hard times in my life when I said yes to something, including telling myself to, to write a book and start a podcast, that's where most of the growth happens in my life. Yeah, it really is. And kudos to Nate, who really uh, our old HR director, Caleb, it was his idea to start a podcast for, for he and I to start a podcast in 2020 when we had all the techs locked out of the building for COVID. So he wanted to start the podcast. We had, we had texts coming to me saying they wanted to get back to meetings. They felt disconnected from this place. And the, and the culture here is a, is a big reason that people stay working here because we, we have a, a great team of people who really enjoy each other's company. And we have high energy meetings in the morning and everyone was saying they missed that. And he came to me and said, why don't we just start a podcast? I mean, his brother does a podcast his, his little brother does a podcast so he kind of knew how to get it started and let, let's do it you know well Caleb ended up moving into another role and Nate came to me one day and said hey I'm I'm moving forward with this idea you on board or not and I'm like well no he ca- probably came to me like 15 times and said when we're we doing this podcast thing and I'm like <laughs> yeah whenever, yeah let's do it bro we'll start next week uh and I'm as bad of a procrastinator as I am bad at technology so it was just like never gonna happen and then he finally said, uh, hey, I'm, I'm starting this podcast thing. You're welcome to join me. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll be there, buddy. And uh, that was that. And it has been. I even listened to a recent, not all of it, but like started a recent episode, uh, not a couple weeks ago, when someone hit me on Facebook Messenger and said how much better we are as a, as a team now versus a year ago. I'm like, huh, I didn't think there was that much of a difference. Whew. Man, do yourself a favor, Darren. I don't know when you started your show. Don't go back. <laughs> don't do not do it over. <laughs> there's a reason there's no uh, film that exists where we can see ourselves as, you know, 15, 20 years ago. It's just, it's not good. We were uh, not confident. We, we It was funny. It's like how different we as people are versus who we were sitting behind those microphones the first few episodes. But I think that's that's a great point because it, it's so true for all of us. If you want to feel better, so I don't know if you guys listen to Jocko's podcast, if you ever listen to Jocko sure. Willing's podcast, um, I feel like he's about to rip your head off through the, through the speakers, your yeah. AirPods, but uh, <laughs> kind of want him to and, too, you know? Yeah. Listen to episode one and I give him huge props for keeping it up there. I don't, maybe it's not up there now, but I listened to it a couple of years ago. It's super raw and rough him. And I think Leif or Leif's his name, they're partnering and they're just, they're just kind of figuring their way through it. The other one, and I can't find the video anymore, but it was awesome. Is Tony Robbins in his early day? He's like, I don't know, like the eighties, and he's got this like fluorescent shorts and this like op tank top, or you know, <laughs> something like white Island creation tank top. And he's in someone's living room, and he's still the same Tony Robbins or Anthony Robbins as it gets he goes by now. But just you see it, and it's just cool to see people that are two people that are really well known in that space and just they're working their way through it too. Yeah. You struggled too. That's like good to high five. We, we all had to struggle in the beginning and it's great to see and great to know. And it's like this uh, book concept that I have 
Um, and, and you're on the other side of that, which is really cool to be able to bounce back and forth a little bit. But the concept, it just feels like um, nobody wants to read this crap. You know, nobody wants to hear this. This is stop wasting hey. time with this. It's just the same thing with the podcast in the beginning. Hey, I mean, everyone goes to those things. You know, I talk about it in the book, but uh, Michael Strahan, you know, successful. Yeah, he had doubts as an athlete, and then obviously becoming a broadcaster was, was challenging. But, you know, another recent example. So I coach my son's little league team, and one of the assistant coaches, he pitched for 12 years in the pros. Not like minor leagues, like a legit, you know, MLB for the Reds. They were playing catch. He's like, yeah, sometimes I can't throw a batting practice. I get, I get the yips. And I'm like, oh, man, that makes me feel better. I can't stress. Wow. So, yeah. hey, we all, go, we all go through these things. I can totally relate to that. Uh, I coached my son's little league team last year, assistant coach, and uh, they was they were doing player BP, and they had a player pitching, and uh, that player that player had to go to the bathroom or something like that. So I stepped in, and boy, was it embarrassing! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the poor kid who's at the plate is like asking for the other player to come back, so they <laughs> so like the, the awesome. eight year old can pitch instead of me. I'm like, yeah, quiet down up there. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true though. I mean, the, the difficulty that we face, whether we choose to embrace it or choose to run from it is what makes a difference, right? I mean, you say, you say in here, cultivate fear and make it your friend, you know, that, that sounds very scary, right? Because mm -hmm. what's our natural reaction to fear? We want to run away from it. We turtle, we, we don't even want it, right? Anything we can do to avoid the initial emotion we're going to do. And then when we get in front of it, we just shut, I mean, it's the natural reaction is to shut down. It will exactly. Right. And that's what I learned from, from Dana, who's a former therapist and, and a volleyball coach, which is kind of a cool combination because she sees things through the lens of high performance. But, you know, she talked a lot about you experience fear and instead of just running away and, and hiding from it, is actually look at it, turn into it and get what, what's that telling me? What am I learning about myself? You know, is it a self-limiting belief that was just left unchecked from a long time? You know, of, of like for you writing a book or for me writing a book or starting a podcast or starting your own company or becoming a manager, whatever it is. Like, ask yourself, what's that telling you? Is it some self-limiting belief? Is it, it could even be a gap you need to close. You know, maybe just you need to get a little more experience or take a training course or whatever it may be. It's like, it's like looking at that fear and, and figure out what it actually tells you. Sure. And even, even down to the like licensing level, there, there are apprentices to kind of your maintenance techs to your mm -hmm. licensed technicians, journeymen, and, and then up to the master license level. And it seems like there are some, I mean, the, the licensing doesn't mean all that much, not, not in a, not a great deal. Once you're a journeyman at most companies, you're, you're good to go. There are some companies where you can just work under a master license and not have to even have a journeyman card. But I feel like everybody should be striving to get it. But there seems with some people, there seems to be this mental block that you can't get them to talk about where they just, they won't study. They won't go take the test. They won't go, they won't pursue it the slightest bit. You can, you can offer them like, Hey, we'll pay for it. We'll even give you a little bonus when you get your license. Just go get it for your sake. So you can consider yourself a real HVAC installer with EPA certification or, you know, a, a real quote unquote plumber with a journeyman card or whatever. But there does seem to be some block where some people just have a hard time getting over it. And I do think it's fear related. I think 
maybe it's a test thing. Like, I don't want to go take that test and fail it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, absolutely. Another great example, but you know, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone too. Right. And I find that generally when people, from my own experience too, when you sign up for something, you say, yes, it's like you're going to do that background work, study a little harder, talk to someone else who's, who's already taken that certification or that exam, you know, talk to a mentor or your boss or, you know, and do that extra work, you know, do some extra research, double down on that and it'll help you be more successful too. So it's like, well, you may be taking a risk. You actually, can reduce the risk by just, you know, taking action on it. And yeah, don't just, take don't just sit there in a state of fear. Yeah. That's the one I push people on, especially in the, in the selling version of what we do, which is what I primarily train on. Um, I was never great technically or mechanically, uh, although I'm a third generation plumber. I wouldn't, I wasn't like a bad plumber, but I never, I didn't, I, I've been around guys my entire career who any, any concept you showed them, with mechanical things like plumbing or HVAC or electrical, it, it went right in and they understood it with one look and, and then they could spit it right back out and then they could break the thing down and put it back together. That was so far the opposite of me. Every piece of plumbing that I learned, I had to just smack my head against it until I understood it because I have, I don't have a mechanical bone in my body. People is my thing. Communication, um, much more philosophical and much less mechanical. I just, I don't like anything mechanical. I get, I get nothing out of cars. Horsepower doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, you know, I like a cool, a little bit of cool technology in the, in the driver's seat. But outside of that, it's just, it doesn't do anything for me. So I would constantly try to learn the mechanical end um, by my way, which is just to run through it as fast and hard as I can and then turn around when I got through it and see what I learned from it, which is also mm-hmm. the way I train your really mechanical people to be better at communicating. So one thing I was talking about in a, this is going to be weird for those who are listening to this several weeks later, but what we were talking about in our training this morning was your weaker guys on the communication and doing a lot more communicating. So what does that look like? Ask your waiter at the restaurant next time you're at a restaurant. Um, give yourself three things that you want to find out about everyone you come across, right? What city did you grow up in? What sports did they play, if any? And, you know, do you have any kids? How many kids do you have? Whatever. So three questions. Whatever those questions are can be up to you. Find those three, three things out about every person you come in contact with just what I was talking about this morning, just because your guys who are really poor communicators, they don't want to talk to people. They, they have an emotional reaction of fear because they're about to have a conversation. And I know this from training so many of them over the last nine years, they talk about when they're going to knock on that door frame of the, of the client's home, they get a sense of panic where, and I've heard this at least from a dozen different people over the years, they actually hope the person doesn't answer the door. Despite the fact that they're all dressed up in uniform and they're in a company vehicle and they're on their way there to make money, I've heard this more times than I can tell you, I actually hope the person doesn't answer because I'm like riddled with anxiety over this conversation. So I say, 
but I actually did it for somebody in the meeting this morning. Nate will love this. I actually told him to go to the front desk and find out from our new recruiter, Ashlyn. Hey, Ashlyn, uh, who he had never met yet. Find out what, what did I say? What city she grew up in and what favorite color? No. What was it? What school she went to? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Those two pieces. And he, we were done with the meeting. Oh, it was previous job. What her previous job? Oh, where'd was? she work before? Yeah. So we, we, the meeting was over and I usually stand there and like greet everybody on their way out. And then he comes flying back in the room and he's like, what do you say? Uh, Hempfield Pottery Barn. <laughs> gives, me, gives me the fist pump. I'm like, my man, that's what I'm talking about. Now go do that to the, uh, to the attendant at the Sheets gas station that you're going to go to, but not the person who helps you at the register, the person behind him or her. Right. <laughs> he's like, Come on, man. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but it's um, it's just powering through. For me, that's the way I always try to do it. Like power through and then look back on your way out the other side and go, what, what did I learn? What could I take from it? Because if I just walk through, I'm not a guy who could stick my tiptoe in the shallow end of the cold pool and get in six inches at a time. I, I'd never get in that pool. I either cannonball off the side or I'm just not getting in. So, and that is fear. I mean, in some way, right? That cold, that cold feeling, you're just afraid of how cold that's going to be, right? Yeah, it's also just your willingness to, uh, everyone's in a different place on that continuum, right? Where it's like, you know, you're willing to jump in cold turkey, do the really hard thing. But, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, starting small, which you gave a great example of that. So ask the, the front line, the person working at the, the desk, or ask the person at the gas station behind the person at the gas register. That's a great way to do it in like a, a lower stake situation. Okay, now take it to an actual customer, existing customer, not talk to a prospect that you're trying to close. Those are all higher stake situations. So it's great to practice the easy one. You know, get those get those uh, no risk practice reps, if you will. Yeah, that's a real baby step approach to it. But it's funny if you. Um, my mentor actually did this for me back in 2004, which is where I came up with There's some version of this. Um, if you get yourself comfortable to the point where you have no problem at, at some point, it might be a month, it might be six months, but you get to the point where you have no problem having these little small one-off conversations, low stakes, as you called it, which was a great way to put it. There's no real, there's no, nothing really that's going to hurt you on the other end of that conversation unless you pick the most beautiful woman in the room every time and your wife happens to be with you, that's not going to work out so well for you. But outside of that, it is pretty low stakes, low, low consequence. So before we wrap up, and I know you're getting to the point where you need to hop off here, I wanted to touch on actually three more of them, but <laughs> we've uh, run so long. I want to touch on 13 uh, before we wrap up and talk about using your past to transform the present. Now, this is the last uh, of the savage leader principles. Can you talk about that one for us? Absolutely. Is in um, this gets back to the introspection piece. You know, we all think we all have stories. Stories. You know, some are just transform transformative stories or situations that happened in our past. But just the idea that we have these stories and situations from our past that have so much richness that can guide and really make up who we are today. And without being introspective, you'll just take the story at face value. Oh, yeah, I went through this situation. I moved to a different country. I 
you know, I um, switched schools. I, you know, had some situation with a sporting event or with a relationship or whatnot. But if you actually look back deeper, there's so much richness that you can gain from that. So for me, it was around living in Switzerland. One of them was living in Switzerland, being the new kid, the, the new kid, the Ford kid, the American kid. And then back in the early 80s, it wasn't always easy to be the American kid. And so for me, what I went to the experience, I got, um, you know, I remember going to the playground and first of all, I actually was supposed to go to an American school. And for whatever reason, I remember walking down the halls and the lights flickered like in a you know psychological thriller movie you'd see. And so for me, I was just like, you know what, I'm not going to the school. I guess I was always a pretty easygoing kid. So my parents were like, okay, if this kid doesn't want to go to school, we'll shift him into this Swiss school. Problem number one was they spoke uh, high German or the national language of Switzerland, Austria and Germany in the classroom playground oof, different story swiss german which is a fundamentally different languages language so i had to learn two languages fast one to succeed academically and actually get something out of that year abroad and two be able to have some street cred on the on the playground to you know deal with these other boys but also you know try to meet some uh, ladies as well so i was <laughs> learning the swiss german was helpful in that context but you know, I got hit with a slingshot on, you know, week one on the playground, you know, staring off into the sea of faces where you're a new kid, you're an outsider in a foreign land. And just, it was, it was scary. I felt alone. And, but what I learned from that was I learned about empathy. I learned about putting myself in other people's shoes when they're, they're different than me. You know, they have a different, um, different experiences, different context, different life experience. And that a lot, that, that taught me a lot. And so that one was a little bit more, obvious in terms of things that I took from it, having that empathy. But a second story was around with baseball. So I always had some success in baseball, all the way up growing through Little League and All-Stars and, uh, you know, winning uh, winning MVP on my JV team as a sophomore. And then my uh, junior, senior year were a total flop, you know, and, and at the time and in the years thereafter, I, I blamed the coaches I, and maybe I, maybe I could, maybe I should have. Politics were definitely... If you're not a baseball player, you'll, you know, the politics of baseball, for whatever reason, are insane. They were different than other sports, at least in my perspective. But so I, I blamed other people for that. But in hindsight, what I learned was that I didn't put enough hard work in there to actually to, to slingshot that talent forward and, and to have, you know, take advantage of, of natural ability to hit the baseball and throw with decent velocity and so forth. But I, I recognize now that I didn't put in the hard work. And so for now, I'm never going to let hard work be the the impediment that prevents me from achieving whatever that goal is. So, so you do learn a lot from those past experiences and, and not just, like I said, take them at face value, but actually be introspective and dig deep, whether it's journaling or thinking about that or talking to somebody else and think about, okay, what are they actually gained from that? What are some of the themes and how does that impact me in my life today? If you don't mind me asking, how how did you learn empathy? from being shot in the face with a slingshot by uh, kids who spoke a different version of German than you? Is that what, what that was? Well, no, I was a you know, new kid, foreign kid, American kid, you know, three strikes against me, basically. And uh, just, um, yeah, I mean, it was that, just being different, uh, being a foreigner, not speaking either of those two languages, you know, in the classroom or on the, on the playground. But it taught me empathy because I thought about, that experience when I was different, when I came at it from a different vantage point, different background. And so when I experience other people that have different backgrounds, that I'm just, I have more empathy towards them and their situations. So I try to put myself in their shoes and ask myself, how might they be experiencing that? 
Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And and part of our training here is to to just picture yourself in this situation. You, you know, you're you're the one trudging through sewage in your own basement. How would you feel? Well, exactly. Yeah, it, well, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, my mom always said, you know, I give her a huge credit too. She always said, look out for the underdog, pick up for the underdog, which was basically bullying was a thing. It just didn't have a label and it wasn't, didn't get all the, all the play that it does in schools now. But that was basically what she was saying. You know, when someone's getting signaled out, stick up for that person or at the very least walk away and be like, Hey, hey man, we're not doing this, you know, which I try to preach a lot to my kids too, which is hard. So you got to stand out from the pack. Yeah. You, you risk you risk yourself becoming uh, bullied that way. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So it's like, I try to teach my kids, you know, cause it's start, they're starting to that age where that stuff's starting to go down, you know, you know, and I don't know from my own personal experience, but trying to give them some tools to how do you handle that? What are some different ways you can handle that? So anyway, I'm, I'm going off the rails a little bit, but, but the point being just having empathy for someone else in a different situation that they're in. Well, Darren, we're about to bring things in for a landing here, and the the content is rich, and we've only um, really scratched the surface of these thirteen principles. Yeah, seriously, we far far we've, more. We've done nothing there. here. We're going to need a couple more hours, my <laughs> man. You're going to have to rearrange your lunch plans. But before we before we let you go, if if people are interested in learning more about you, obviously they can read the book, uh, The Savage Leader. Uh, but I don't know if your consulting principles go down to the individual or if you stay more on like the business level, but how could people find out more about you or group 60 and the podcast? Sure. So I'd say the best place is go to the savage So you can download a free chapter of the book. There's links to the podcast. So we're up to, I think 36 or 37 episodes. Now um, we blog twice a week. There's a bunch of free tools people can use as a compliment to the book. Or um, if you want to connect on LinkedIn, you can search my name. I'm sure it'll be in the, sh- the show notes. But um, happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. But yeah, in terms of our services, we do one-on-one coaching for folks. We also do training for organizations and for teams, and then uh, working on creating some digital courses as well. So which are which are accessible to the individual consumer as well. Darren, how many languages do you speak? <laughs> well. I would say conversationally and probably really rusty, uh, German and Portuguese, and I guess hopefully decent enough English. But uh, uh, we're, we're I have able learned. to make it out somehow. <laughs> okay. But that's good to know. I've been accused of mumbling in the past, so tried to improve there. But um, yeah, and I, I spoke French, uh, Spanish, and Italian at different points in my life as well. But I'd say the two that I remember if I was thrown into a, a situation with, is German and uh, Portuguese. I was fluent in German as a ten-year-old, but uh, it's a bit of a little bit rough, but uh, and in Portuguese, I learned from living in Brazil. It's been so good to talk to you today, Darren. And as we wrap up the show here, um, you know, we started off the the questions by asking which of those principles do you feel has been the most universally impactful. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of flip that on its head and say, like, as you are developing the next generation of leaders, and as you're consulting with people who who may not have the title, but they're trying to. Uh, conduct themselves in such a way that's going to get them there. What what have you found to be the most um, principle that is lacking uh, that that you see is the the weak part across the country, the weak part in up and coming leaders? Uh, where do you think they should focus? I'd say all thirteen, all thirteen. But um, I would say the ones I mentioned, obviously, values and authenticity. But I think the the biggest. Uh, 
in terms of something really practical that you can do immediately is just this idea of, of lifelong learning and growth and constantly pushing yourself. I say every day presents an opportunity to get better in every way. Obviously, that's, that's probably way too unrealistic and aspirational, but I do believe there's a chance to, to grow and get better, you know, whether it's you know, in your job, to take on a new trade, to deepen your experience, to study new technologies that are coming out that could really change the way that you deliver service, to, um, you know, polish your ability to communicate. And there's so many different tools that are out there now. It's, it's between the internet and, um, you know, books, seminars, digital courses. But don't, don't forget about mentors. You know, people that are in your community, people that are your neighbors, you know, get to know them. What, what's their expertise? Learn from them. You know, ask people that are really experts at sales. Take them out to coffee. How do you, like, what are some of the mindsets of selling? Like, how do you do it? Like, how can I authentically sell? Here's some of the gaps and barriers that I have. So consider those people around you as great tools that can be helpful in terms of your growth. So definitely lifelong learning and growth. I promise you things are not slowing down. Things are going to constantly move faster and faster. And the only way to really adapt and be agile is to constantly learning and growing it better. Man, I, I would say not one of the principles, but something that stuck out for me in the book that I would say is probably the biggest thing lacking or missing or overdone or underdone in leadership that I've been privy to over my 42 years. Um, and this is the quote that we used to open the podcast, which you weren't part of, but you'll be able to hear if you decide to listen to this episode. Uh, it's a quote of yours from the book. It said, the traditional leader is driven by ego while the savage leader is driven by purpose. The traditional leader uses a command and control style with their team, but the savage leader empowers and enables their team. Darren Ranke. Well, Darren, it's been good to have you on the show and uh, we really appreciate your time. I know you got to run. And so make sure you check out his book, The Savage Leader and the website, thesavageleader.com. And uh, we really appreciate you having on the show, Darren. Please don't stop writing. Uh, the world can use more people and more content like this. And we'll, we'll definitely, we would love to have you back on either just for another episode or um, if you do the Savage Parent, we'd love to have you on to talk about it. Awesome. I deeply appreciate that. Thanks, Darren. Have yourself a great day. Yeah, you too, guys. Hey, that's a wrap for this show. I hope you enjoyed listening to Darren Ranke and talking about the savage leader. What is the leadership concept in you that you feel is weakest? Uh, if you are a leader or a leader in development, working on those focus points is a great place to start and identifying your own weaknesses so that you can begin uh, trying to solve those, trying to fix those, trying to make those things better. Darren brought a lot of great content today and his book brings even more with those 13 concepts that he's written down there. Some of the ones that I think are especially important for our generation today, like he said, using values to anchor and guide you. Um, it, you know, there's that old saying, either stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And I think that's, that's critical for every leader to have that internal set of values that is going to guide them. And then one of the last ones in his uh, book, uh, The Table of Contents there, is own and challenge limiting beliefs. What are the things that are holding you back? What are, what are the the recordings in your head from your past, um, from your, your disbelief that is preventing you from doing something that you can do and that, that is absolutely within you. And so we ask you to think about those things. And of course, we challenge you to do better, to make yourself better and to uh, seek out that fear and that discomfort and begin pressing into that to make yourself better. And of course, 
We want to challenge you to choose to wake up every single morning and waste no day.